There are 651 members of parliament in Westminster, and of that number, only 126 voted, as I see it, to maintain our rights and our liberties and not to take us down a very, very dangerous direction. So on the one hand, we now have a Labour and Conservative Party united on virtually everything. It's rather like the pre-Brexit days. They're both effectively social democrat parties who agree on almost everything. The opposition uh, now comes predominantly in Westminster from the Conservative backbenches, nearly 100 of them, voting against Johnson's proposals and against specifically the idea that vaccine passports are a good idea. I've articulated over the last couple of evenings why I think they're a very bad idea and actually could lead to more spread of disease. But was it about when 99 of them going against their prime minister, despite his very strong urging of them not to do so, was that really about coronavirus regulations and rules or was it something bigger? I think it's something far bigger. Many of that number are unhappy with the unconservative direction in which he's taken the party. Many of them are alarmed by his plans for net zero, what it'll mean for their constituents in terms of their own living costs. Alarmed that small business appears now to be totally ignored by a government that used to stand up at a party that used to believe in free market capitalism. But above all, I think it's his leadership style. And you know, the happy, laughy, jokey, slightly at times buffoonish Boris Johnson worked a treat as Mayor of London and as somebody out at the front in campaigns. But as, as leader, it isn't working. People aren't laughing so much anymore. And I think there's a fairly strong, growing number of MPs who feel they need a different leader. Johnson's always had great luck in his political career. Last night was the moment that luck has run out. Uh, I'm not going to say he'll be gone soon, because he won't. But it certainly does feel like the beginning of the end. And that's the question I want you to answer tonight for me. Do you agree with me? Do you think last night was effectively a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson? Let me know your views. GBviews at gbnews.uk or you can tweet at gbnews. And don't forget, you can send in your Barrage the Farage questions for later in the show. Well, let's get to Westminster and be joined by our political editor, Darren McCaffrey. Darren, you're there in Downing Street. Good evening. Yeah, indeed, uh, Nigel, I am, because we've, of course, had this big press conference, haven't we, this evening from Boris Johnson, Chris Whitty. Pretty stark warnings, it must be said, from uh, Chris Whitty when it comes to the Omicron uh, variant. Suggestions that people are misreading the data from South Africa, that we are now seeing hundreds of thousands of cases a day. It is the dominant variant in London. It will be in the rest of the UK within uh, days. And the concern is that we're going to see absolutely huge case numbers, 78,000 today, but that will pale in comparison to the hundreds of thousands that we'll see in the days and weeks to come. And why is that concerning? That's only cases, of course. Chris Whitty saying it is nailed on. That's the very phrase he used, nailed on, that we will see, again, mass hospitalizations in a couple of weeks, simply because of the sheer numbers of cases. Even if this virus is somewhat a bit milder, the sheer number of that big peak will mean that the NHS will be under pressure again. Interesting, though, Nigel, there was no actual change in terms of uh, the official advice, certainly no restrictions being put in place to deal, potentially, with this. Chris Whitty's advice was... If you're going to go out, 
get tested before you go, but also his main point was to prioritise what you do in the run-up to Christmas, to think about your social gatherings, the parties you might go to, and say, do I really need to go to these if I potentially do not want to catch this virus ahead of Christmas? And interestingly, and this could become a really big issue, forget about the pandemic in the summer, because we're not seeing so many people catch this virus and people have to isolate, of course, for 10 days, irrespective of those symptoms, we could start to see enormous pressure on public services, on transport systems, on logistics around the country if suddenly lots and lots of people are forced not to go to work um, because obviously they've come down with this virus and legally uh, they have to stay at home. No, and of course, if I believe what I was told um, you know, months ago, Provided I got a double vaccine, none of this would matter. But it hasn't quite worked out like that. So now the big push is to get the booster. And, and, and the Prime Minister talked endlessly about the booster um, in, in a sort of desperate effort to believe that somehow that will stop us from catching this virus or at least from getting ill from it. But I wonder, Darren, on top of that press conference, and I have to say, you're right, they were dire warnings uh, from Chris Whitty, but we've seen big overestimates in the past of what might happen. What about politically in Westminster today? You know, I was teasing out the point last night that it felt to me a little bit like a vote of no confidence in Boris Johnson. Uh, what are you picking up in the corridors today? You know what? There are still a lot of Conservative MPs angry, frustrated, concerned, it must be said, concerned, looking ahead to that Shropshire by-election tomorrow about what may well play out uh, there. Massive rebellion last night. Historic context, it wasn't that much smaller than the one that Theresa May faced in the first Brexit vote. And my word, that was a big one. And it was from a right across the party, uh, Nigel. I think that's what's going to probably concern the Prime Minister most. It was four select committee chairs. It was a former leader. It was leadership former leadership candidates. It was a lot of red wallers. Uh, so it is not just a section of the party uh, or kind of the usual suspects who are angry at Boris Johnson. It really is quite broad and quite deep. Uh, the Prime Minister kind of tried to laugh it off today as he did somewhat. He was asked actually during that press conference about whether he was prepared to change as some MPs are calling for him to do. He suggested he wasn't. He suggested uh, that actually him as leader was partly responsible for this enormous vaccine booster effort that we're seeing. I think at the moment, you know, we're leading into Christmas, but this week is not done yet. Parliament may be going to recess tomorrow. We've got two really interesting moments coming up that, again, could pile the pressure on Boris Johnson. That by-election tomorrow should be a safe Tory seat, 23,000 votes. That's how much Owen Paterson has been banked away since 2019. I mean, it would be extraordinary for the Conservatives to lose that. And in addition to that, we've also got the Cabinet Secretary's report into the parties that took place in Downing Street last year. What did the Prime Minister know? Uh, is he potentially going to take responsibility for what ultimately happened under his own roof? Those will be two key moments yeah. before Christmas that, again, as I say, could change the dial. When it comes and I'll to offer you a third, Darren. I'll offer you a third. Because as we speak, there are dinghies massing in the dunes of northern France and tomorrow could be a huge day for migrant crossing. So whichever way you look at it, a tough few days coming up. Thank you. Now let's turn to one of those who decided to go against his party leader, against the Prime Minister last night. And I'm joined by Sir Christopher Chope, Conservative Member of Parliament for Christchurch. Christopher, good evening and welcome. Good evening, Nigel. Now your vote last night 
you know, and I quite understand. I've listened very carefully to the arguments as to why vaccine passports not only are a very un-British, a very unconservative, uh, one might say, uh, thing to do, but also in health terms could be counterproductive. I get all of that. But your vote last night wasn't just about coronavirus regulations, was it? Well, my vote was about the coronavirus regulations because so that was what we were voting about. Uh, but um, obviously, a large number of people voted against uh, the, the Conservative government, um, who we wouldn't normally expect to be voting against the Conservative government. And uh, I think that um, that is quite a, a challenge to the authority of the Prime Minister. And to answer your question directly, I think there is a lot of concern about the direction of travel of the government. And that's not just the Prime Minister, but obviously he's He's the leader of the government, and a lot of us would like to see uh, more distinctly conservative policies, and rather than the sort of uh, con conservative Labour Party pact, which uh, in many respects seems to be dominating so many of the policies we've got. Yes, I mean, it feels to me like the pre-Brexit days of sort of Cameron, uh, you know, and Miliband and, and Clegg, and everyone's a social democrat, and you can't really put a cigarette paper between the parties on big policy. But if, if I interpret what you're saying correctly, and you say this is not actually a vote of no confidence at this stage, but a shot across the bows, if he doesn't change, and if he continues with the obsession with net zero and many of the other things that have upset so many of you on the back benches, how long is it before 54 letters go in and trigger some sort of contest? Well, I think one of the um, pieces of good fortune that the Prime Minister has got is that there is no clear alternative to him. And I don't think anybody would be putting in a, a letter uh, asking for him to be uh, to resign or to be tested in, in a vote amongst the parliamentary party uh, unless they had somebody clearly in mind as they thought would be a better alternative. And Nigel, when I ask around colleagues, um, they all seem to agree with me that there is no clear, better alternative. Yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. Um, although, you know, um, one can believe or disbelieve uh, what you see in the newspapers, but all sorts of talk of lobbying of all kinds going on. Are you being lobbied, Christopher Chope, by other potential leadership candidates? Uh, funnily enough, I'm not, actually, no. Um, but uh, that's, that's not a surprise, really. <laughs> or perhaps that's because you're too independently minded. Listen, we take very carefully the words that you've said. We thank you for coming on, Christopher, and joining us this evening. And what Christopher Chope said there is right. It is all about direction of travel. They don't feel, actually many of them, that Boris Johnson is even vaguely a Conservative, and that really is what this is all about. And, yes, it could be a shot across the bows from some. Others that I've spoken to directly just want to get rid of him. And I know there are many of you watching this who voted for Boris Johnson, who still like him, who will see this as extreme disloyalty, and I fully understand that. But he does seem to have gone a long way away from the promises upon which he was elected in 2019. Now, COVID, where on earth did it all come from? Well, it came from China, though we're not really supposed to say that, because somehow that's too nasty and too unpleasant. And yet, some very powerful testimonies today, and I'll be joined by an author of a new book suggesting very strongly 
that this virus did come from that Wuhan lab and that the truth of this is being suppressed. Was last night effectively a vote on Boris Johnson's leadership, a vote of confidence? Your view's coming in. Boris is finished. No Conservative that I know will be voting for him again. Roger on GB View says no longer believable, no longer Conservative, no longer needed. This is quite harsh stuff. Barry says, honestly, no. Last night has nothing to do with confidence. A mixed range of opinions, as always. Now, this afternoon, in the House of Commons, a science and technology committee panel saw Dr. Alina Chan a molecular biologist at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard addressing MPs and what she had to say about the source of the coronavirus was interesting. Just watch. Thank you. All right. So I think the lab origin is more likely than the natural origin at this point. We all agree that there was a critical event at the Huanan Seafood Market that was a super spreader event caused by humans. There's no evidence pointing to a natural animal origin of the virus at that market. Now let's turn to Lord Matt Ridley, author of Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. And Matt is also a Conservative peer. Good evening and thank you for joining us. Good evening, Nigel. Now, a friend of mine across in America called Donald Trump dared to suggest quite early on in the pandemic that it was more likely that a leak had come from the Wuhan lab where all sorts of experiments into bat viruses were going on. And somehow it seems that because he said it, the rest of the world utterly discredited it. And it's only now we're beginning to hear this opinion. Is that a fair analysis of where we've been with this? Yes, I think that is a fair analysis of what happened. In the early months of the pandemic, it was uh, the Chinese authorities were assuring us that it came out of the market. Uh, I was convinced by that. I read some papers d- dismissing the possibility of a lab leak based on various arguments, and I went around telling people that it was very unlikely. Uh, then in May of 2020, the Chinese admitted that none of the animals in the market had tested positive. Uh, and at the same time, it became clear that the virus was surprisingly well adapted to infecting human beings. And a lot of other evidence began to fall into place that made me uh, question whether or not the lab leak needed to be looked at again. And I've ended up co-authoring this book with Alina Chan. And we have both become convinced over the past 18 months that, well, we can't be sure either way, a lab leak is slightly more likely at this point. The central question we have to ask is how a virus normally found in horseshoe bats in southern China turned up a 1,000 miles further north in the city of Wuhan, and 80,000 animals have been tested uh, and other animals that might have brought it, and none have been found to carry it. And one animal we know did carry it all the way from southern China to Wuhan, and that was a scientist, because they were searching the bat caves of southern Yunnan, bringing them back to the biggest bat virus, bat coronavirus research lab in the world, in the city of Wuhan, doing experiments there that needed to be looked at very need to be looked at very carefully because a lot of them did produce more dangerous viruses as a result of experiments. Well, I mean, given the logic of what you've just said, why then? Why, oh why, oh why, did the Chinese authorities choose to give us a different account? Did the Chinese authorities alert us quite late in the day? What was their game? 
Well, I think in the first month or so, uh, nobody expected it to become a global pandemic. And uh, so uh, changing, as it were, the you know, telling people not to tell others what was going on and denying human-to-human transmission and all these mistakes that were made in the first few weeks are understandable under those circumstances. In more recent months, the Chinese authorities have uh, stressed two pet theories. One is that it came to Wuhan on frozen food. This makes no sense, because why wouldn't it have caused an outbreak where the frozen food was sourced? or in other cities to which the frozen food was sent, or why wouldn't any of the frozen food have tested positive in Wuhan? Uh, Their other theory, which one of the Foreign Office spokesmen uh, started uh, talking about a few weeks ago, is that, yes, it did come from a laboratory. It came from a laboratory in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where SARS coronavirus research is also done. Well, yeah, I mean, there are no horseshoe bats in North America, so that makes very little sense. And how would it have got from North Carolina to Wuhan? So, uh, you know, they're on the one hand saying it it can't have come from a laboratory. And on the other hand, they're saying it came from your laboratory, but not ours. Extraordinary. And just finally, quickly, Matt Ridley, if I may, uh, the Omicron variant. We've heard Chris Whitty uh, talking tonight in pretty grave tones about the numbers of people that will catch this over the course of the next couple of weeks. And yet on this programme a couple of days ago, uh, we had Dr. Kurtzi from South Africa saying, well, yes, lots of people catch it, but very, very few get seriously ill. Um, What are your fears for this variant? Are we perhaps becoming is government perhaps becoming uh, a little bit too overreactive? Well, I am, like you, rather encouraged by what Dr. Kurtzi and the other South African experts are saying. The death rate in, in South Africa is, is has fallen pretty dramatically while Omicron has been spreading, uh, and that is encouraging. It looks to me like it is a milder form, but I can't be sure of that. On the other hand, it is so infectious that vast numbers of people probably will get it in the next couple of weeks, and that might mean uh, significant increases in hospitalizations and, and deaths. Um, but uh, with luck, this is, as it were, the, the, the last twist in the virus becoming a milder thing like the common cold. And it is disappointing how easily it breaks through the vaccinations, which until now have been very, very helpful in preventing serious illness and probably are still helpful in preventing serious illness. Matt Ridley, thank you. I'm going to get a copy of the book Viral. Thank you for coming and joining us here on GB News. Now, schools. Schools have been closed for really far too long, in the opinion of very many. Uh, And indeed, when we look at the case of Arthur Lebinjo Hughes, that poor little six-year-old boy with 130 serious bruises on his body, does seem to me, had the schools been open, that probably would have been detected. And yet, uh, the NASUWT trade union are saying they want schools to go back on a staggered uh, basis. And I just wonder how schools are feeling about this. I wonder how parents at home are feeling about this. I'm going to ask Christine Cullinliffe, principal at LVS Ascot. Now, you're a fee-paying school, I know, um, but does it feel like a staggered approach to schools going back is where we're going? I'm always an optimist, and I would have liked to have thought that, you know, come January, we'd be going back to, you know, normal like we have done in in this autumn term. But when I saw the news tonight, I must admit my heart absolutely sank. You know, things are happening very rapidly, so we just don't know what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks. And I don't think anyone wants us to see a staggered return. Nobody wants to see more disruption, but we don't know where this is going. No. And how much damage has been done to kids' education over the course of these last 20 months? 
it's hugely damaging, hugely damaged. It's, you know, different schools are going to have different experiences. Um, but, you know, we're seeing, you know, children coming back that haven't been able to socialise with each other for 18 months and significant transition periods in their development have been halted. Um, you know, so we're seeing young children who went off in year seven, year eight, coming back now as young young adults and having to deal with all that brings. And then younger children, you know, tying shoelaces, buttoning shirts, getting ready for PE, huge social issues and behaviour, I think, too. Yeah, I'm very worried about it. And Christine, we're going to follow this story very closely over the course of the next couple of weeks ahead of schools going back. One final quick point. Uh, as we begin to vaccinate younger and younger people in this country, is this something that's proving to be contentious in schools or is there a wide general acceptance? I think, again, it depends where you are. I mean, we've been quite lucky. I think there's a general acceptance in our area and I think we've got high vaccination rates. And, you know, it's something that every family's got to think of clearly what is best for your children and your family. But, you know, so far, so good. And, and let, let's keep our, keep our chins up and keep optimistic. Well, I like the spirit of optimism. Thank you very much. I hope it's borne out when the schools go back in a couple of weeks' time. Thank you very much indeed. Now, for the last week or so, it's been quiet in the English Channel, but today we saw the first migrant boats that had come for just over a week. Not large numbers, uh, but we're anticipating something very different tomorrow, I think. Uh, and I'm joined by Mark White, GB News' Home and Security Editor, and he's there in Dover Docks this evening. Mark, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. So the forecast, I've looked at it, it's going to be absolutely flat calm overnight, like a mirror tomorrow morning. Um, and I understand you're picking up some little pieces of intelligence about my, what might come at first light tomorrow. Yes, yeah, sources telling us that there seems to be some significant migrant activity on the other side of the channel across the northwest uh, France coast there, especially between Calais and Dunkirk, this hotbed of activity that uh, every time the conditions start to improve in the channel, you get a surge coming from those beaches. And this, I think, Nigel, is going to be a real big tester for the French authorities because following the tragic deaths of 27 people in that incident mid-channel last month on the same day that we were out on the water in a boat in the middle of the channel as well and spoke to another boat that had come across uh, from the same stretch of beach. Uh, there was that almighty row between the uh, French president Emmanuel Macron and Boris Johnson finger pointing in both directions. Well, the French have said that they are stepping up patrols on their beaches. So let's just see tomorrow how many of these small boats they managed to prevent from leaving their shores. We saw more than 30 people arrive today, as you said, not many at all. And the first time that we've seen migrants arriving in the UK for about 10 days now just because of the appalling weather conditions in the channel. Uh, but of course we know that every time that those conditions improve then the people smugglers are pushing these small flimsy boats out onto the water. Yeah no that's absolutely right Mark and in the past you know you and I have, have really pushed very hard over the last few months to say this is a massive issue it's going to get bigger uh, and we've been proved right uh, because politically, in many parts of the country, it's been up at the top of the list. The rest of the media uh, have tried their best to ignore it, but have now been following it. 
Are the media, are the broader media now anticipating what will come tomorrow? Yes, uh, and interestingly, our local producer down here said that he'd noticed quite a few members of the uh, wider media down here today, obviously like us, anticipating the potential for more small boats to try to make that crossing in what, as I say, will be the first real test of authorities on both sides since that tragedy. We had a day or two after the tragedy, about a hundred coming across in three boats, but really there hasn't been the big surge in boats that we saw on that day when those 27 people lost their lives. Uh, there are some other pieces of information going around in terms of the efforts to try to deal with this crisis. We know, for instance, that uh, the British government is now going to be commandeering part of the Ministry of Defence site at Manston uh, to put together a new processing centre that's there specifically, Nigel, to look at uh, trying to identify those who we know, of course, are told by the people smugglers to throw away their identifying documents. So when they come to this country, it's very difficult indeed for the authorities to try to get a handle on who exactly they are, where they're from, what potential threat they might pose. So this new centre, a secure centre, will be up and running to allow a week or so for authorities to try to into the background of these individuals. I suspect and in they're going to be. To that, the National Crime Agent. Sorry. I suspect they're going to be very busy in the course of the next few days. I'm going to have to love you and leave you there, Mark, but we'll speak to you tomorrow because I've no doubt it'll be a big, big day and a big political story, too. Now, I've talked many times about the price of this illegal trade across the channel. What I haven't talked about is the personal price that many have had to pay. I'm going to speak now to Lucy Smith who has had to cancel her wedding plans due to the hotel she chose, being shut to accommodate asylum seekers. Lucy, good evening. Evening. Now, I have to say, I've had lots of emails from people who've been through this. You're the first one uh, that I've put here on GB News, because it's about time people understood the impact on people's lives. So you were going to get married. You'd booked a hotel to get married. In March of next year, everything was ready invitations going out and then what happened Lucy? Basically I seen on a Facebook post that the hotel had actually closed its doors um, first of all it was for a roof refurbishment um, I contacted the hotel in question um, to see if this was true they basically said no it wasn't um, I then later heard that off another Facebook post that it was closed due to housing refugees coming over from Afghanistan. I then contacted the hotel again to see if this was true and obviously what would happen with my wedding day as it was only three months to wait. Um, and basically I've had no communication since from the hotel regarding what is going on. We've basically, I've had money put into my account, which equals up to the deposit which I've paid the hotel so far. And they've not even corresponded to say I've been refunded or that it's been cancelled or even let us know what is happening. Yeah. And is it easy to find, alternative, to, to find an alternative venue for the wedding? Definitely not, because most people book in years in advance. And obviously to find what we want that's suitable for family members, disability access, stuff like that. You know, we can't just get another venue like that, you know, and obviously the the stress and all the preparation, you know, that's involved with obviously booking a wedding is, is difficult. 
And how are you feeling about it, Lucy? I'm just upset, to be honest. The main thing is, obviously, we've lost family members during COVID and stuff like that. There's family members that are, you know, in ill health. Um, that's why we obviously really was excited to get married in March and have them family members here with us. Obviously, if we have to wait another year, two years, will they still be here with us? We don't know. Um, it's just more upsetting the fact that we've had no communication whatsoever. Nobody's even let us know anything. You know, we don't care whether it's being turned into an ice cream factory. You know, someone just please tell us what is going on, you know, and, and what's happening. We've not even been sent just an email with an apology. Lucy, you're one of many hundreds of people this has happened to. I've heard these stories before. Thank you for coming on and sharing it with our audience here at GB News. And good luck with getting another venue and cracking on with your wedding plans. You see, there's a big price. A lot of people are paying for this. Hotels like that booked all over the country. Well, a what the Farage moment, one that I really did quite enjoy, is the story about Carlisle. Yes, Carlisle Football Club have decided that from now on, they will only admit 9,900 and 99 people, fans, coming in to watch the football to get them round Boris Johnson's new COVID rules, which I think shows a certain entrepreneurial flair. And one more, what the Farage, and this is extraordinary. Owning a car could become a thing of the past, a government minister claimed this week. Junior Transport Minister Trudy Harrison, 45, told a sustainability conference owning a car was an outdated 20th century piece of thinking and the country should move to shared mobility to cut carbon emissions. Well, Trudy, 80% of households here in the United Kingdom own a car. Um, uh, it is extraordinary uh, that you believe uh, that you're going to bring this in. It's going to happen very, very quickly. Uh, and I have to say, when people like this become government ministers, you do realise why some of those 99 people rebelled last night. Many of them sound more like the Green Party than they sound like Conservatives. Hopelessly, totally, completely out of touch with their constituents. Very, very London-centric in their thinking. Because you know what? If you live in London, you can survive without a car. That's not the same for everybody else. In a moment, I'll be joined remotely I guess because of the pandemic and work from home, on Talking Pints by Con Coughlin, defence and security expert. We'll talk to him about China. The GB News pub is open and I'm joined by the Daily Telegraph's defence editor and foreign affairs columnist, Con Coughlin. Who's at home? Con, it's a remote Talking Hi. Pints, but welcome. Thank you very much. Well done, you've... Joined in the spirit, as I would expect, of a... I have, yeah, and I'm a, a very nice pint of Sussex beer. I mean, I don't care that. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> now, Con, you've been in and around the newspaper industry for a considerable number of years, about 45 years, uh, something like that. You've seen amazing changes in the industry. I have. I guess it's not as much fun as it was when you started. It's different. All I can say is it's uh, it's very different. I mean, when I first started at the Daily Telegraph in 1980, I remember going to the news newsroom, and it was all typewriters then, and all the typewriters were were chained to the desks, and I thought, 
surely the journalists at the Daily Telegraph aren't kleptomaniacs. And eventually somebody uh, explained it was to stop journalists throwing them out the window in rage after they had a good lunch. And I think somebody had actually thrown one out into Fleet Street and then he killed somebody. So uh, it was a very different environment, Nigel. Yeah, but is it still fun? I think it's fun, yeah. I mean, not least because of the subject matter I cover. You know, I'm covering a very broad range of subjects, uh, defence issues, global security, foreign affairs. Uh, the people I meet, like your good self, we've, we've met in the past on yeah. uh, various events. Um, it, it's just great fun doing that. It's a different environment, but it's still great fun. Yeah, well, good. I'm pleased to hear it. Now, you may or may not have seen, but earlier on in the show, I had Lord Matt Ridley on, uh, you know, co-author of this recent book. Um, and there was some testimony given this afternoon in Parliament. And we've now got some really great minds who've done their homework, done their research on the origins of the COVID-19 virus. Uh, and these guys, it was, just Donald, it was just Donald Trump to begin with, but these guys are now convinced that this came from that lab in Wuhan where they were doing experimental work on bat viruses. You feel very strongly, don't you, about the Chinese Communist Party and the way in which they behave? I certainly do, and I, and I welcome this kind of research from the likes of Matt Ridley. I think it's really important. Um, because, as, as, as we all know, the, the virus is, is inflicted not just as a great health calamity on the world, but an e economic devastation. And I must say, I find it very odd when I go to get, buy masks that all the masks you can get are made in China. Um, and I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, ha having, having sort of brought the, the world to its knees with this with this uh, virus. Um, the one country that seems to be gaining economically from it is, is China. So, uh, and of course, the Chinese have done their best. The Chinese Communist Party have done their best to cover up the origins of this, um, you know, whether, whether it came from a lab, whether it was research into biological weapons. I mean, th this is a very murky area. And a lot of the Chinese people involved have just disappeared. Uh, just like the tennis player. So you, know, you are dealing with a very ruthless authoritarian regime. And, and yet, Con, if any of us say, look, you know, it did come from China, maybe they should apologise, let's just remind ourselves, or if anybody even dares call it the China virus, suddenly we're wicked, evil, nasty people bordering on racism. I mean, what is this all about? Yes, well, I... All I can say is that 10 years ago, and I was part of those, I was one of those who thought, you know, the Chinese are just really interested and concentrated in developing their own economy. They don't pose much of a threat to the outside world. And when I came across the Chinese in foreign climes, they seemed very self-contained. Um, and I think we've all had a big wake-up call, thanks in large part to uh, President Trump who really called them out. And there, there had been murmurings about what China was up to, but it was down to Trump who called them out. And, of course, it, it, it's completely changed the way the West does business with Beijing. But that said, there is still a constituency, both here and abroad, that really wants to try 
I suppose appeasement's too strong a word, but they certainly want to reach a, an accommodation with Beijing so that we maintain our trade links. And they're putting trade above security in my book. Yeah, well, that's my worry about it. And I can't see us even attempting to hold China accountable. But beyond talking about the virus and China, uh, they've become increasingly bellicose, haven't they, about Taiwan. Um, over the last, as you say, 10 years, suddenly militarism appears to President Xi to be rather an important thing. And at the same time, we've got Putin with 100,000 troops massed on the Ukrainian border. Uh, and it seems much of the European Union, uh, certainly the Democrats uh, in the USA, quite a lot of people here seem to think that Russia's our biggest threat in the years to come. Is it Russia, Con, or is it China? Well, that's a very good, very good, and very big question, Nigel. <laughs> um, I, think, I think in the immediate short term, Russia is... Russia needs to be taken seriously. Um, the thing about Russia, in my view, is it's the great disruptor. What Russia wants to do is undermine our democracy, challenge the weak spots in the Western alliance um, in, in its bid to re-establish itself as a major world power. And a lot of what Russia does is driven by paranoia. Uh, and it's not as big as it thinks it is. The, the Russian economy is very weak and will get yeah. a lot weaker if it starts meddling about in Ukraine. I think in, in, the, in the bigger, broader term, China is definitely uh, the bigger threat. And yeah. uh, as the head of MI6 um, said recently in one of his, his first major speeches since taking the job, you know, Beijing uh, is, is, is what we need to focus on. And in that context, you know, it was only two or three years ago that our intelligence chiefs were, were trying to convince us that having Huawei, uh, the Chinese telecoms I giants, I build our 5G, you know, I mean, just, but these are the same people who were telling me I was talking nonsense when I said we couldn't do this. I know, I know. Sorry. And of course, you know, there were many, many very high up in the political, civil service and business worlds in this country, very much in favour of Huawei. Some of them, of course, served have served on its advisory board. Con, finally, I've got to ask you, you know, you've travelled the world, you've been a war correspondent, you've done all sorts of things. Uh, tell us about how you very nearly got kidnapped by Hezbollah. Oh, that, that was one of the low points. We've talked about you know, the excitement of journalism, but uh, I, was, I was in Beirut um, in 1986, and in fact, I'd, I'd asked my then editor, Max Hastings, Sir Max Hastings he is now, if I could leave because it was getting very dangerous, and he told me to stay. And it resulted in me having a very uh, maudlin dinner with one John McCarthy. Um, and the next day, all hell broke loose in Beirut. I got out. I did phone John and say, you've got to get out of here. He stayed because he wanted to get another interview. So I got out, lying on the back seat of a car under a blanket, and, the, and John the next day tried the same journey, but was a bit more visible. And the rest is history. Five years changed to a radiator. So when I look back, back, that was a really lucky escape. Yes, it was. And uh, do you remind Max Hastings of him, of him trying to keep you there? <laughs> um, well, on the rare occasion he talks to me these days, yeah. <laughs> Con Coughlin, I know it's been remote. Come and do it live in person at some point in the future. Will, yeah. Thank you for joining fun, me Nigel. on Thank Talking you. Pints. Very, very good to see you. Thank you.
We're coming towards the end of the show, but we do have a couple of minutes left for Barrage the Farage. So here we go. One viewer says, will Nigel be limiting his social interactions or going to the pub as normal? I don't live in the pub. I mean, some of this was a bit of a myth created by the Daily Mail. Uh, look, I, you know, last year there was basically very, much, very little of a Christmas at all. Um, I won't be going to any crowded nightclubs. I will be vaguely sensible, uh, but I intend to carry on pretty much as much as normally as I can uh, between now and Christmas and into the new year. And uh, I have to say, though, if ever I'm asked to show a vaccine passport to go to a pub, I won't be going to the pubs. Another viewer says, Nigel. What do you want for Christmas? Well, I don't know what I want for Christmas. I guess what I would like to see for Christmas uh, is a Conservative Party absolutely committing to making sure we get the full benefits of breakfast. And that would do me. Presents I don't need. You know, I spent 25 years of my life fighting against the establishment, against the odds, to get back our independence, and I want us to take full advantage. I know that sounds a bit sincere, but I do actually really mean it. Last question. Finally, John asks me, with the price of second-hand cars soaring, are you ready to trade in your vehicle for one of those nice electric ones? Well, you're absolutely right. Second-hand cars are up 27% over the course of the last year. It's stunning. It's actually cheaper to buy a new one than you have to wait for it to come in many, many ranges. Electric, not for me yet. We'll